1: Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 435. You're listening to, and my guest today is Maria Elisa Ayerbe, who is an engineer and producer based out of Miami, Florida, originally from Bogota, Colombia. She has worked with Mary J. Blige, New Kids on the Block, Kronos Quartet, and a million others. And we're going to have a really great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy. So, Maria Elisa Ayerbe, coming up here. On the Working Class Audio podcast, grab your coffee cups, friends. Let me do a little Nam recap for you. So I just got back from Nam. Uh, in fact, I got back yesterday morning. Yeah, and it's actually Monday. If you hear this show today on Monday, uh, which is the seventeenth, uh, you're hearing it super fresh because it's eleven twenty-six, and I haven't even got the show together. So my apologies. Yeah, running a little behind. Anyways, uh, I'm going to do a Nam recap here with you, just a broad overview and some thoughts. And then next week, I'll have a different show, which is going to be some interviews with some uh, pro audio manufacturers that I had there, and uh, as well as a a side interview with Garth Richardson. So, yeah. So it's going to be a little bit different show next week. But for now, let me just give you the quick overview. Um, Nam was great. It seemed a little smaller than normal, but it still was great. In other words, you know, when I say smaller, I mean that in a couple different ways. There there were some manufacturers that were not there that did not have booths. And at the same time, the attendance, while still a lot of people, didn't seem as, you know, heavy as the pre-pandemic level of people. Uh, but that's fine with me. Honestly, I walk so fast during Nam, trying to get to where I'm going that I almost feel like they need a fast lane and a slow lane because you have what I call a lot of the you know the looky loos, the the folks that are coming in and they're just kind of taking their time, doing a Sunday stroll kind of concept through, you know, the entire place. And I'm just like, oh my god, get get me over these people! Like if I could have like a little Nam helicopter to fly over them to get to where I'm going, it would it would be awesome. Uh, but that's just me being impatient. So it was a great show, lots to see, lots of cool stuff. Um, you know. Some people asked me what I thought about, you know, what did you see? What, you know, what gear is just, you know, super cool? And I, I, and my honest answer was, you know what? I really don't give a shit. I came there to see all my friends, all those connections of people that are, you know, acquaintances and friends that I love hanging out with. Um, that that was just the coolest. Okay, but the highlight, obviously, uh, that some many of you know, I did a uh, Atmos panel at the Courtyard Marriott. This was off-site of Nam, and it was me moderating. Andrew Shep's was there, Dave Way, Steve Genowick, Will Kennedy, all former WCA guests, which you've heard before. But uh, Bob Clearmountain joined us. Bob hasn't been on the show yet. I'm working on that. That's a uh, that's something to to hope for for the future. But uh, yeah, it was me and all those guys, and it was really fun. It was a great discussion. I thought it was. Uh, we had uh, a total you know, snafu with the live stream. So I apologize for those of you that tuned in and were like, I'm going to listen to this. And then it wasn't there. We did record it. It's there. We have the audio. We have video. And Nate from Cali Audio is working on getting that out. So fingers crossed, it'll get out sooner than later and you'll see it. I'll, I'll make a stink about it on social media. So you'll, you'll know. But yeah, that was great. And I think what it all comes back to for me is community. I've kind of ranted at you all in the past about community, and I'll just rant again. A lot of the doors that get opened for me are the result of relationships that have long been built up where they start, they're just relationships. They're just, you know, people I dig hanging out with, people I love listening to, getting advice from. Uh, they ask my advice. You know, it's 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 a it's a give and take relationship. It's they're they are friendships. Some of them are more acquaintance like than than true friends, but they're all good relationships. And it was once again great to see all these people and uh, drink with them and hang out with them. You know, have coffees with them. And I gotta really give a shout out to my brother from another podcast, Lidge Shaw. Really great to see Lidge. We roomed together, we Ubered in every day, we racked up quite an Uber bill, I'll say, uh, that we're splitting. So that was super fun to hang out with Lidge. And, you know, we had some crossover events between recording studio rock stars and working class audio. You know, a lot of great people showed up. I gotta give a shout out to Chaz Root and his wife because uh, not only is Chaz a former guest on the show, but, you know, they showed up for like everything we did the RSR and WCA meetup, my Atmos panel, my WCA members group met up, you know, and if, if you're like, well, what's that? What's the WCA members group? It's a it's a private paid group with that I've put out. And some of you may know about it, some of you may not. I open the doors to it and invite people in to, to get in every so often. I actually have only done it once, but I'll do it again. So Chaz was part of that group as well. Uh, I got to meet former WCA guest Michael Castaneda in person who I've never met, which was really great. And yeah, community. It it just, it means a lot to me and I find it to be like uh, critical in the way I work. I don't know if you all agree with that or if it, it works that way for you, but the only way I can get through that many days of Nam, and I got there Wednesday and didn't leave till Sunday morning, the only way I can get through that is through the community of people that I'm tight with. And I would encourage you to, uh, you know, if you're not a community-oriented person, try to become one because it's super helpful and it's a good thing. So, yeah, community. Um, Nam though, yeah, a lot of stuff, a lot of cool stuff, a lot of uh, interesting conversations I had, uh, and you'll get that next week. I I talked to some people from... uh, Audio Movers and Antelope and AEA, you know, So some of those are past sponsors, some are not. Some are just, you know, I just, I met them. I walked up and I was talking to Andrew Sheps and he said, oh, you, you should talk to the Soundflow people. You know, I use Soundflow. So it was a natural thing for me to just go, yeah, great. Let's talk. And you'll hear all that next week. So uh, I promise. But uh, yeah, that's about it. If you haven't been to NAM, I strongly encourage you to go. I know if you're flying from across the country or across the pond, uh, that is a bit of an expense. So plan for it, think about it, you know, stay in a cheap hotel. You don't have to stay at the the Hilton or the Marriott, which, you know, are great, but you know, that's kind of pricey. So find a hotel like 10 or 15 minutes away like Lidge and I did and just Uber in and then find somebody to split those Ubers with you or Lyft if you're a Lyft person. And I think you can make it more affordable. You can also eat uh, your breakfast each morning at, you know, maybe like a local neighborhood place outside of the area. So you're not getting such inflated prices. There's ways to do it. And it can be, um, it can be really, really cool. And you, like I say, you form a lot of relationships, you meet manufacturers, you meet other engineers, and it's just fantastic. So that's in a nutshell, what happened at NAM. And, um, if I, if you were there and I missed you, uh, I'm sorry. I w- would love to see everybody, but, um, yeah, I do my best. Uh, that's it. So we should get on with the show, shouldn't we? Yeah. All right. Well, I'll give you, like I say, next week, tune into that show. Uh, you can get some, some finer details from some of the manufacturers, and uh, that'll be that. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution if you're going to be doing Atmos That is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. Prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pres to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So, if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out, and if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me, and we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Maria Elisa Iyerbe here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Maria, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I have heard many of your podcasts, so it is a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad you're a listener. Well, then, you know, generally, the range of conversation that we're going to have, so I'll just dive right in. Where did you grow up?
0: I am Colombian, born and raised. When I was 16, I moved to La Paz, Bolivia, when I was 18, then I moved to Santiago in Chile. Then I came back to Colombia when I was twenty-one or twenty-two, I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived in there for a few years. And then in 2012, I moved to the US and I've been here ever since.
1: And where in Colombia did you grow up?
0: I was born in Bogota, oh, the capital.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Growing up, brothers, sisters.
0: I have one brother, one little brother. I'm four and a half half years older than him. So we're kind of like in two different generations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it feels like he is a film producer, video producer right now. He lives in Canada, in Vancouver, and I have devoted myself to music. So we're kind of pretty balanced right there.
1: Well, tell me about your upbringing in regards to music and your first exposure to the idea of recording.
0: Well, it happened fairly young in two separate areas. First of all, when I was born, my mom was a television producer in Colombia. She worked as an executive for a network back then. So once she had me, after her maternity leave, she got back to work. And, well, she had a newborn baby, so sometimes she had to bring me to work. So work for my mom meant going to studios where they were shooting telenovelas and TV series and all Mm. of that. So I grew up in, in television studios up until my mom basically quit to have my brother when I was four. So I had a lot of exposure to that world. And then... A few years after, my mom began working in UNICEF, and she actually stayed there for a very long time. And while she was there, she was communications officer. So her job was uh, producing all sorts of audiovisual material for UNICEF, and that included sometimes recording songs or recording audio for documentaries or any audiovisual material that she was producing. So I was exposed to going to studios early, like during the 90s, Not only as accompanying my mother, but also sometimes as I would remember, then she'd be like, do you fancy one of those pizzas that come with like ham? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why? And she's like, oh, if you come with me, you'll get one. And I'm like, whoa. And then Mm -hmm. I would have to work for it. Basically, I would have to work as a voiceover actress dubbing different characters because Obviously, I was I was bilingual by then or trilingual at one point because I knew a little bit of French. So it was a very cheap labor that my mom was cultivating at her house, in her house. <laughs> and also sometimes I remember Christmas uh, television specials being shot at my house or wherever we were having our Christmas Eve. And then what happened was parallel to all of that, ever since I was a little young, I discovered I had a, an ear for music. So I began studying music. I began with the recorder, as many of us did back in the day, but I took it to another level. I was actually like doing after class recorder studies at school and and we had a recorder choir where we would participate in, in in like competitions with our recorder music. And then eventually when I was 11, I discovered Nirvana. And that that just tells you my age, obviously, and that I discovered that I, I love Nirvana and I wanted to learn every single guitar riff. So I grabbed my dad's guitar, which he never played. My mom gave it to him, but he never played. I got it right now. And I grabbed his guitar and out of this ear, I started like strumming and figuring out how to play like Kurt Cobain's riffs. Until I got it to a point where, like, I don't know how I tuned my guitar, but I was probably, like, fifth or something. I was able to play a lot of the Nirvana songs, which are pretty easy to play anyway, with, like, one or two fingers. And at that point, my parents were like, we should probably hire her some sort of music teacher, guitar teacher, that can yeah. provide her a little bit more understanding of what's going on. So, yeah, I was I was studying guitar at 11, when I moved to La Paz, I began doing bands, so I actually started playing clarinet. I figured I could sing in tune. So, I was pretty active when I was young in terms of like having bands and doing talent shows and all of that.
1: Was your father involved in anything musical or television production wise?
0: No, my dad is an architect, but he is a he's what you would definitely call a music lover, a music passionate. Like my dad has an incredible record collection. A lot of the bands that I grew up with, I'm still a fan. He he was very much into everything that we, we referred to as Anglo music. Mm-hmm. So when I was growing up, I grew up to Elton John and Eric Clapton, The Eagles, America, Chicago, Earth, Wind & Fire, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, those are my childhood memories. So I think part of the reason why I do the things that I do is also because my dad... Up until this day, he sits in his studio every Saturday and Sunday afternoon after lunch, and he just listens to music for hours and hours. And and when you grow up with someone who's just pushing so much music into your ears with such a taste, eventually that, that catches, right?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And so I still, a lot of the music that I listen is is reflected upon what my dad trained me to listen to, kind of.
1: I'm curious, you know, with your mom being in, in television production, why that didn't catch and music did.
0: Well, I think for me, it's a, it's a matter of I always felt more passionate for music than for acting. Although I tried, I eventually learned that I sucked. But nevertheless, eventually it it ended up catching up to me because starting three years ago, I began hosting a television show that aired on HBO, it's called A Tiny Audience. And I was the host, I was the main host. And on the sides, after we shot the season, I would then mix the music that we recorded live because it's a music show. So it did catch up eventually and I've always been like a public speaker. I have this thing where it's just easy for me to talk for hours and I am not. I don't have like, how do you call it? When you're like not afraid of, of audiences, I don't have that fear of public speaking.
1: Yeah, you don't so, have stage fright
0: yeah, I don't suffer from that when I'm talking. When I'm acting, I suck. Like I was the worst actress. and I think when I was in high school, everybody just canceled me. Music came easier for me. Mm. So I think that's that's why I caught up,
1: and I want to come back to the to the HBO thing in a bit. But let's talk about your first experience in a recording studio,
0: yeah. so it was it was probably with my mom,
1: okay. That's right because you were exposed in the television production area. When was your I guess, your first professional experience as an adult. Well, I guess those were professional experiences with your mom.
0: Yeah, and, and not only in, in television studios, but also recording studios, because sometimes my mom would need to record a song for the children's peace movements that happened in Colombia during 97 and 98. So she, my mom ended up like hiring Colombia's top pop mainstream singers to write and perform and produce a song from scratch that basically was the the song that led that movement. So she invited me to all of those sessions. So I I got to experience how to record vocals and how to produce a song. And, and I remember being in Audio Vision Studios in Bogota and seeing that Neve board. And somebody told me, this one is very similar to the one that John Lennon used when he recorded his solo album. And I was like, whoa. And it, it is actually the same same model. So, yeah, one of those things that you're like, whoa, just experiencing it all. But I wasn't part of it, obviously. Being part of it happened later.
1: When did the divergence of, I'm assuming recording kind of took center stage for you more than music itself did? Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, so... When I was a teenager, I realized that, as I said, I was, I can sing, I can play guitar, but I never saw myself in the spotlight. That is something that I knew, you know, you, you either you have it or you don't. And deep within me, I didn't feel the need to be in the spotlight. I definitely enjoyed more the part of the production. But I actually, I wasn't sure at all that that was the thing for me until when I was in senior year, I was definitely debating myself what to go to school and where to go to school. And it was my mom who said, well, why don't you try audio engineering, which is basically that halfway point between being a performer, but also being in the production side of Mm things. In Latin America, we didn't have music production back then. So that's why I didn't consider it at the time. But also... Above all of this, I have always been, like, a very geeky technical person. I was never good in maths or physics, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Everybody who knows me knows that. <laughs> However, after repetition, I actually got really good. And I am, it's really funny how, as an adult, I am much better in math and physics and acoustics and, like, electronics than many of my classmates who got the greatest grades. It's really funny. Like, nowadays, I'm better than them. But that was—it's— because I just persistently got into it, right? But everything else, I've I've always been the person who like, I don't know, I was listening to music, my Walkman would break down and I figured out how to fix it, or my Discman would break down, or like my speaker wouldn't, I don't know, something would happen, I was always that person. And mixtapes, which is something that kids from the 90s, we experienced a lot. <laughs> I was like a genius going back and forth, tape A and tape B, press record, press record. I knew I had a knack for that. Well, I was good at it. It just came very natural to me. But it was my mom, the one who suggested, why don't you try this career? This is an option for people like you. And I went like, yeah. And then once I was there, I was like, hell yeah.
1: So how did did that manifest? How did it turn itself into a career, the whole recording and production thing? What were the steps involved?
0: Oh, there were many steps, usually. Nothing is easy in life. So I began... Going to school in Chile, because I graduated from La Paz, Bolivia, and that, it was definitely not an option there, I couldn't go back to Colombia. Because of a technicality, I didn't have what would be the equivalent of a Colombian SAT. Okay. So I ended up going to Chile, at Universidad de Chile, which is one of the biggest universities in the country. I started going to school there. It was very technical, very engineering-oriented. It had a lot of math, a lot of formulas, a lot of theory. We had equipment but it was very scarce as any public university, especially in Latin America. We had one computer for 100 people, one Pro Tools station. So it'd be a matter of when we were in class, like who wants to grab the mouse? All right, who wants to grab the keyboard (laughs) kind of thing? So you would really need to get in the mindset of this is the only time I have to learn. Nowadays, it's just anybody has everything, on your phone, whatever. Back in the day, it was really, really hard for us. There was a 48-channel Trident board, I'm going to say, really old board that they had over there. And they also had, I think it was a 24-track Tascam digital recorder. Yeah. So everything that we did, the little amount of studio time that we had was precious. And I think that is something that stuck with me as opposed to many of the people who are sort of like my age. I didn't grow with, didn't learn from the pleasure of having multiple avenues. I come from the avenue of you only have one shot to get it right, because otherwise somebody's going to come and take your spot, right? Right. And that's something that stuck with me ever since I began studying. So I I remained in in Chile for a little bit over two and a half years when I realized that there was a lot of music theory and music, everything else that I was missing, we had very little of that. And I started asking around in Colombia what was happening, and and I found a school that was better suited for me. That's when I decided to move back to Bogota. I joined another university, which is called Universidad Javeriana, which has a great... They had just made a switch for their audio program, so I ended up doing a bachelor in music with a major in audio engineering. Mm -hmm. Which combined with the more than two and a half years of studies that I had previously in just audio engineering, I came up to be one of the most well-balanced, proficient audio engineers slash musicians from the program. So that, that ended up being, for me, because I was far advanced in engineering than music... I began working professionally as an engineer while I was a student, and I also began teaching very early on. I began teaching when I was 24 because I already had a lot of information that most of my classmates didn't have. So I began teaching, and, and probably teaching has been like my oldest job, teaching audio, all sorts of audio levels. I have been a teacher in Columbia, here in the U.S. I actually was able to come here to the U.S. because Middle Tennessee State University, which is where I did my master's degree, they gave me a full scholarship because I was able to teach while I was a student. But going back to Colombia, I was working, I was recording bands, I was I started recording uh, classical music with assisting other engineers in Colombia, recording the Bogotá's Philharmonic. For my graduation project, I started also working as a post-production engineer for a big post-production house in Colombia. So while I was a student, I was also mixing and sound designing and doing audio editing for television shows that were being aired then in television networks all around the country and doing films that eventually got presented for Oscar considerations and all of that. So I I had a lot of experience even before graduation. Mind you, I ended up doing a seven and a half year degree between what I did in Chile and what I did in Colombia. So I am like hyper-specialized in a lot of things. A lot of unnecessary things too, like all sorts of Bach composition and a lot of analysis that nobody cares about, just me. And the after graduation, I kept teaching as my side gig. I kept producing. I kept recording and mixing, trying to do what the market in Bogota allowed me to do back then. We're talking mm-hmm. about 13 years ago. It was limited, it was small, and it was also not so friendly for women.
1: I was going to ask that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, that eventually has to catch up, right? So yeah, it was a, a thing where I'd, I'd be like, hey, do you want me to record and produce your band? I I do it for a very limited cost. I'm just looking for the experience, you know, kind of thing. And they'd be like, "But well, women don't know how to do rock music. And I'd be like...
1: <laughs> what?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, if you ask around, that is definitely one of the most friendly comments that a woman can receive in this industry. So I felt that there was a not a glass ceiling, but there was definitely a concrete ceiling that had been put on me for what I wanted to do. A lot of my classmates, women classmates, eventually found other jobs in post-production. Although I had been working in post-production, I continued working doing live television as well in the audio department. After I graduated, I was already working for reality shows and being post-production supervisor and all of that, but I did not enjoy it. I really wanted to make music, and I wasn't given the opportunity nor the window, nor the chance or the space to do it, and that's when I figured out maybe i just have to move. And through the program at Middle Tennessee, I found, well, I still have a lot to learn, Why don't I just move somewhere where I know I'm going to get a lot of great experiences, meaning greater Nashville area, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. and work as a teacher for the department, absorb everything that I can, network as best as I can, and eventually I'll figure out my way from there. And that's how it happened.
1: They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with sampling makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. sampley.app check it out. So you came you came first to Middle Tennessee State. Uh, that was your first stop. So you ended up leaving Bogota and coming to to Nashville, right? Correct. Okay. Wow. That must have been a quite a culture shift.
0: It definitely was. I mean, Middle Tennessee is definitely not <laughs> even close as a Latin American metropolis of 9 million people, but it was kind of fun. I actually enjoyed it. I've never lived in, a, in an extremely small town. And, and going to uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee was quite, the, quite the, the shock. But at the same <laughs> time, I, I enjoyed it very much. You know, I enjoyed it and I miss it a lot. I miss a lot of things from Tennessee when I was living there. The food and all of that. It was great. And I think also being in an environment that was so welcoming for anybody to, who just loves and appreciates music and engineering. That was the best shock for me, knowing that there was, there was suddenly a space for everyone to be part of, and I love that. And
1: your experience with the program was positive?
0: It was incredible. And the thing that I loved is that because they knew that I came from experience, it was great that they allowed me to move swiftly at my own pace which is something that other programs are a little bit resistant to do. The recording industry faculty in Middle Tennessee, they know that, especially in our world of recording industry, people can come from so many worlds. You can be the most experienced audio engineer in the industry, as many of us know of, I don't know, hundreds of them that have never stepped foot in a classroom. And they probably know more about everything than anyone who's dedicated themselves to academy so they understand and they allowed you it is a program based so that doesn't matter where you come from you can level up Mm. and that's great and and they allowed me to move at my own pace they they knew that i had been teaching audio basics for three years now professionally not even when i was a a student but like after graduation so they allowed me to skip all of those classes They, they knew i could certainly teach, you know. They allowed me to take music theory classes. I am a big music theory nerd, music literature and history nerd. So as everyone was doing Pro Tools basics, I was doing a deep dive in 20th century European composers just because I wanted to.
1: I have to say just everything that you've told me up to now, it's just really astonishing how much experience you've had in so many different areas we were just talking about music theory, of course, but television and post-production, music recording, education—just so much activity in such a short period of time. It's—it's it's really, I'm envious. It's—it's it's fantastic.
0: Thank you. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm going to take a tired. nap now. Or yeah, for like 15 years. But I'd say the thing is that I get bored very easily. And that's another thing that a lot of people ask me when they ask me about my mixing process and like, hey, how do you do this? Or how do you come up with this effect? Or how did you figure out this? And I'm like, I just got bored. Literally, I cannot. For example, if I'm mixing an album after track three, I am going to have to figure out something new. Otherwise, I'm just going to douse myself, you know, like douse <laughs> myself and be like, oh, this is the same thing that I just did twice. So you'll always find, it just happened to me yesterday, I, I finished up the last track for an album that I was mixing, and then the producer, he's like, whoa, what, like, what do you, the production, it's like, you took it to another level, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I just, I, I got
1: bored. <laughs> your, your, your stuff's boring, I had to make it exciting. And
0: no, it was incredible, but then again, it's like, You know, when you're mixing an album, sometimes it just happens that three or four songs ended up being sort of like the same just because it is an album. Right. And I'm like, I can't I can't have this just being a a template of the other two that I had already done. So I just reworked the arrangement in a very respectful way, but ended up just giving a totally different twist that the producer had hadn't really figured out.
1: So you you graduated from Middle Tennessee. Am I correct in saying that you then went to Miami? Is that right?
0: Yes, that is correct. So I finished the MFA program at Middle Tennessee, and by then I had figured out a way to replace a lot of those available credits that I had for internships. So I was actually working in Nashville at a studio while I was a student through an internship program. and. The thing is that when you are an immigrant, a lot of your decisions are, unfortunately or fortunately, based upon your immigration status. So I needed to figure out a way to stay in the country because I really wanted to without breaking the law, of course. So after you graduate as an international student, you're given permission to work, which I was able to get. However, I needed a contract Mm. and nobody in Nashville would give me a contract. They would hire me to go and record it at different studios, but nobody, that, that whole contract thing was a little bit too much for many of the studios that I had been speaking with. So eventually, out of the suggestion of a, one of my teachers at MTSU, he said, well, why don't you go to Miami? I mean, in the end, a lot of the people that have gone through your same road ended up over there and maybe you will find a studio that will be willing to work with you and give you a contract so you can get your work permission. And and probably, obviously, they'll hire you and you'll find your way amongst your people. And I figure out why not. So that's how I ended up here.
1: Amazing. So how did you find the shift to Miami? Was it more familiar territory? It's a bigger city. Oh, yeah. Probably a little bit more international population in general, more diverse population.
0: For sure. For sure. With the goods and the bads, because obviously the informality that I wanted to run from when I was living in Latin America, it is the tea of the day here in Miami. The Miami standard time is usually 30 to 45 to one hour late, which was something that worked the other day when I was in Nashville. And I didn't certainly appreciated that. I had already gotten used to Nashville studio recording times. And here in Miami, it's like I'll catch you and I'll catch you. And then you're just like waiting on a client all day to figure out if the if if your artist is gonna show up or or not. When in Nashville, if somebody doesn't show up, you're gonna get paid and then the session is gonna get canceled and you're gonna get paid for that too. Miami certainly no, it's different. But at the same time, I figured I, I found a niche. And in the end it's about finding your niche amongst your people and finding people that understand you and that and that appreciate you and see what you can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And that's the people that I've found here and I was able to collaborate and, and I've been able to build my career from that.
1: So, you know, just looking at some of the artists that you've worked with, Mary J. Blige, New Kids on the Block, Cronus Quartet, far cry from your early beginnings strumming the guitar to Nirvana.
0: Yes, thankfully. A lot of those opportunities have come just by being at the right place in the right time as everything in life.
1: Well, I bring it up in just uh, from a genre perspective. Do you feel that you got away from where your heart was at in terms of music? I mean, you're such a well-educated person when it comes to music. So your love of music is so much more broad than just, you know.
0: A genre. Absolutely. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because As we were talking about at the beginning, I grew up with a certain type of music with my dad that he was listening to all day long. And then I also had my own taste of music. But when you're a Colombian, we are brought up in this culture of dancing music. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is inevitable. Inevitable! Like you would see metalheads, goth people dancing to salsa in Colombia. Because it is one thing as... What's your taste in music? And then there's definitely another thing, which is what you do when you're partying. And those two are very true when you're Colombian. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the same time, because I I ended up going through a a music degree, which was highly academic and and sort of in the conservatoire approach, when I was in Bogota, well, I had to study everything that was in the classical realm in terms of, when we shouldn't say classical academic music, I mean, I know my Bachs, my Beethoven's, my Mozart's, my Shostakovich, my everything. As I've mentioned before, I'm a huge nerd in terms of music theory. So that's also partly why I was recording a lot of classical music. So when it comes down to just working in diverse genres, it's very hard for me to say no to a genre. I definitely have to just not understand it at all. And it is very rare. I'd say yes to a lot of genres, even if I've never heard of them. Right. Because I am curious.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and you get bored easily.
0: <laughs> yes, so that's the other thing. I...
1: Well, so tell me about where you're at today in terms of surviving in the audio industry mm-hmm. in your best assessment of, like how has it been going in general?
0: It's interesting that you, that you use the term surviving. I think it is a survival mode, fortunately. I don't dedicate myself solely to audio. Mm -hmm. I am still a music instructor. I'm currently working at Abbey Road Institute here in Miami. Mm. I do produce music. So I am a music producer and a vocal producer. So whenever I don't find myself mixing, I definitely find myself producing. I would definitely love to see myself recording a lot more. But this is Miami. Miami, we we don't record music in Miami. Everything is laptop produced or you would just call someone and they'll record it for you. Wow. There's an explanation for that. But yeah, I would definitely would love to see myself recording more. And that is something that I don't get to do quite often. And I also, as I mentioned, Mm. eventually host television shows. I am a trustee of the Recording Academy. So that does take a lot of my time.
1: Yes, it does.
0: Yeah, I have to go to a lot of meetings. But I enjoy those, definitely. I am part of different organizations of, like, female empowering in, in music and audio industry in the community. Like, we are moving the needle, Sound Girls. She is in music and all of that. So that also takes a lot of my time. And what else? I don't know. I There's so many things that I do. Yeah. I, sometimes I forget.
1: You're speaking my language because, as anybody who listens to my show knows as you just rattled off all the things that you're doing, you are excelling at the game of diversification. You are 100%, yeah. doing a lot, uh, multiple income streams, multiple activities, which I'm sure opens up many doors in terms of connections and people that you know, which leads to gigs.
0: Absolutely, 100%. And I always tell my friends and people who ask me and, and, and young students and people who are just coming into the business, It'd be a perfect world if this was 1997 and we would all just find a gig at a recording studio and stay there on payroll. But that's not the reality anymore. We have to adjust. We have to understand that artists don't have the budget to do that anymore. Record labels don't want to have the budget to do that anymore. We know that. (laughs) Streaming services want to keep the revenue to themselves into a special club that they have going on. So the reality is that money isn't there for us anymore. And either we survive and figure out ways to do it, or we just die. We just we just plunge, you know? Yeah. And also it obeys to the fact that I am certain that no one is just like a magician of one trade in the sense that even mm-hmm. though we're all recording engineers or we're all mixing engineers, none of us, started doing that a lot of us had a background before that most of us are musicians ourselves most of us because we've we've had to learn how to do our profession which is quite difficult we we need a lot of training to get, in order to get that we could be passing on that information we could be mentoring we could be putting out our knowledge to the world mm-hmm. so that is another way of profiting from all of that and also, Another of the things that I do, I have my own record label. It's an independent record label. I have very few artists, but I dedicate myself to a lot of that. Why? Because I want to make sure that if I find an artist that has a lot going on and has a lot of potential and maybe they haven't found their way to get seen by someone else, what if I can open those avenues for that artist myself?
1: That's a brave endeavor. And a couple of people who have been on this show have have gone down that path. Hugh Padgham has a jazz label. Andrew Sheps has had Tonequake records mm-hmm. for some time. And I tried my hand at it, dipped my toes a bazillion years ago in the days of CDs, but that's a tough business, especially now. Obviously, your material costs are not as much because we're not so dependent on the physical yeah. media. Exactly. And it allows us to get in with the streaming services, but doesn't it take a fair amount of money in promotion or are you? Yeah. Okay.
0: That's where the money goes. Basically, that's where the money goes. However, definitely you're allocating money for promotion, for marketing, for digital marketing, but at the same time, the costs of getting a good production have lowered. Mm. And then for independent musicians and, and independent productions, That's how you are able to compensate it, I think, especially with young musicians, young musicians. If you if you guide them and train them well and you show them sort of like I'm not going to say the good old ways, but definitely the good old ways of doing things. You mentor them enough that they can be responsible and, and have a future in the music industry. You can get great talent for a much lower cost. Not not to say that that it's like an exploitation system. It's not. We're not running a, a mill here, but it's about, for example, with the artists that I work with, they have been working with their friends for a very long time. Why should I just spend all my money hiring a big-time producer that's going to come and erase all of that development that they have been doing together mm-hmm. as a bunch? What if I just train them and we produce music, but I raised the bar for their standards so maybe they, in five years, can become that big-time producer. And that's the type of talent that I hire for my label. See what I mean? Yeah, So, totally. so I am definitely lowering costs in production by mentoring people and providing opportunities and guiding young producers, young talent into the better ways of the industry. And maybe that's going to be better music than if I just stamped a big-name producer and spent three times the budget in one song for the entire album with a song that is not so great.
1: What is the name of the record label?
0: It's called South Mountain Music.
1: Okay. And for the audience, I'll include a link in the show notes so people can check that out. I wanted to come back to being a woman in the audio industry. You talked about your experiences in Columbia. Have your experiences been different in the U.S.?
0: Mm, I'd say yes and no. I mean, in the end, I I traveled this far just to realize things sort of stay the same.
1: Mm. Disappointing.
0: Which is disappointing and unfortunate. This is a much bigger market, so you will see more of us, but then when you compare it in terms of size, then you'll end up just at the same spot. Mm. And it's unfortunate to see that With such a big market, when it comes down to hiring women, especially to be in charge of big budgets and big productions, you don't find that very often. Hmm. And that's when the economic disparity happens. Many of us working in the music industry here in the U.S., I find myself in the U.S. Latin kind of world, Mm -hmm. which is like two worlds colliding together. But still within the U.S., Many of us don't get hired by the major labels, partially because when you see who's running the major labels, you realize it's only men. Mm-hmm. And then it's a matter of, oh, we just don't know where we are, where they are. And it's it's a common thing. Like You got to step up. We've been here forever. But when it comes down to our personal experiences... We just don't get hired to do jobs because for some reason, somebody believes that we are not capable of doing all of those things. However, I do believe that there is a bigger share of the market if you took into account all of the independent productions. In the independent world, things are running very, very differently. And many of us are working in the independent labels and independent world. Even the names of, I don't know, big names, Trina Shoemaker, you know. All of those ladies work independently, which is great because we find ourselves very, very busy and a lot of us get access to Grammy Awards and Latin Grammy Awards, which is great. And all of that is amazing. We get the recognition. Brands nowadays, obviously past the Me Too thing, past 2017, brands want to include us in their marketing campaigns. They want to make sure that we are getting our space and we are acknowledged, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. However, however, when you see that there are the usual suspects, all male, earning more than $3,000 per mix, and none of the women are getting that, Hmm. there comes a moment where, and I've told that to all of my male friends and male colleagues, and they understand it. Unfortunately, the solution is not amongst the colleagues, and it's definitely not a responsibility that has to come from women in audio, women in production to fix this. Somebody has to hire us. I can't ask my good friend Josh Goodwin to hire me. He's also a mixing engineer. For all that matters, we are competence. We're right, we're competitors. Right. But the fact that as women, even though we're very there's very few of us, and we know that none of us, because we don't get those jobs, we know that none of us are making 2K, 3K per song not even the 10K or the 12Ks that many of the big names are getting in this industry per song, right? We would be lucky if we get all of that budget per album. Lucky, yeah. most of us don't get those budgets per album. So we have to work 20 times more to get the same amount of money, technically for having the same talent and the same capacity.
1: This is a timely conversation we have this thing here in the San Francisco Bay Area called the Bay Area Audio Nerds. It's basically a group of audio engineers that show up. Once a month, we all get together and you know meet at a bar, meet at a studio. And not everybody can make it all the time, but last night I showed up to meet everybody and almost nobody was there. But for the first time, it was me and three female audio engineers, Leslie Ann Jones being one of them, Heidi Trefethan, who's uh-huh. been a, a former guest on Working Class Audio, and an, another woman named uh, Carmen Caruso, and it was an interesting shift, a welcome shift for me to walk in. And typically, it's a sea of dudes, and right. here I walk in, and there's these three ladies and me, and I'm just like, "Is it just the four of us? Where, where is everybody?" And <laughs> and we didn't we didn't know what was going on, but the four of us sat yeah. there and talked shop for a while. It was great. It was a nice. It, it was a reminder. That there's some super duper talented women in audio everywhere, and yep. it was and it was a pleasure to sit with these three ladies to talk shop too. Especially, you know, I mean, somebody as legendary as Leslie. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, your grasp of languages. Have you found that that has been a, a super positive tool to have in your tool belt? Oh yeah, especially in Miami.
0: Especially in Miami, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I just started working for SiriusXM here in Miami, doing recording for the live shows, which has been amazing. Yeah, how how do you welcome a Cuban salsa band to your studio if you don't know how to talk Spanish? And And it's also, I think, being bilingual is also a matter of not only knowing the language, but definitely understanding the culture. And I think that is also very important when it comes down to music. Because in the end, when we're mixing, when we're producing, we're producing to, obviously we have our own style. We are also our culture. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the decisions I make, even when I am mixing like a metal song or rock song, I'm always looking for that for that spot where things are gonna get very visceral and very and very corporeal. And that a base to my growing up where we dance to everything in Colombia so I I need to feel the music and a lot of people will tell me how my mixes are always very very (laughs) corporeal like the music that I make it's it's very you can feel it you can sense it 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 triggers something in you because that's what I'm looking when I am working so
1: corporeal means
0: like you feel it it's very bodily oh okay very physical very kinetic you know So being bilingual is, or trilingual, or whatever, it's all of that. Definitely, when you're recording other languages, it comes handy to know that maybe, oh, maybe this, I should respect that ing termination. I should respect that weird noise at the end of this word, because maybe that noise is part of, it's not just a, a click. It's definitely uh, part of the enunciation or the termination of that word. So,
1: not something you would RX out.
0: Not for sure. And 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 also, I always tell my students, and in a lot of the conferences and workshops that I do, depending on the language that you you speak, for example, your SS will have a different range. SS in English are more around like the six k, ten k, twelve k range. Whereas in Spanish, you can go as low as three k. And, and that is like I would use two uh for Spanish, I suppose, and <laughs> one dieser where I'm covering different ranges.
1: That's fascinating. I laugh, but I mean it's truly fascinating. And and a lesson to those who do not travel much. Yep, you got to get out in the world to understand. As you say, it's not just about the language; it's about understanding the culture too.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Understanding the culture, understanding that, uh, assuming that you don't really know. Like, for example, I remember working with Haitian music. You know, there's a huge Haitian community here in Miami. Mm. And walking into the studio, not really knowing what I was being hired for, I was being hired to work with a musician who, unfortunately, he passed away. He was, like, considered the Michael Jackson of Haiti. Big pop musician. And pop for their pop, right? Some Afro beats mixed with traditional Haitian Afro-Caribbean music. And uh, I walk into the studio and I realized like a lot of the music that they grew up with was the music that I grew up with because Haiti and Colombia, we share a lot of the same African roots and we share a lot of the same rhythms that developed on the late 19th century and early 20th century. So we had that common ground. And then as I was mixing the music, I heard a lot of the same instruments replicated in Haitian music. And I mix it like I would mix my Colombian music only to find out that Haitian music is very specific. Compa music is very specific about how loud the cowbell has to be as opposed to salsa. It's extremely loud, and it has to be panned to a certain spot. And congas have to be panned to another spot, which is totally different in the shaker or the maraca or the guiro that you would use. They have specific pannings that are completely different from Colombian salsa, which are kind of different from Cuban salsa or Dominican salsa. Hmm. And the levels vary. And the thing is that those are the identifiers from basic, those are sonic identifiers that define where the song is coming from. And that's the end of it. I mean, you want to get the job, you want to do right by your job, just stick with the norms of each culture.
1: Right. Know the history, know the tradition, which you do because you've studied Extensively music history, and that's you know that's another lesson for those listening. You know, if you think, oh, you know, I'm a mix engineer, I can jump into any genre because Mm -hmm. you know you might think in your head that you're more worldly than you really are. But if you don't understand those those sonic clues, as you indicated, where the cowbell, how how loud it's supposed to be, where where it's supposed to be panned, you're going to screw it up.
0: Yeah, well, that's basically how I got my first studio gig in Nashville. Through a common friend, I met a Latin percussionist drummer, a guy from Italy who has been living in Nashville for more than 25 years. Everybody knows him because he's probably the guy who has recorded Latin percussion for everyone in Nashville. He used to work with Tito Puente back in the 90s, and then he moved to Nashville. He's Italian and he stayed. And when someone that we had in common, when she found out that I knew I was Colombian, and obviously I knew how to record tropical percussion, she was like, oh, you got to meet Pino because he's been desperately trying to find an engineer that knows how to record proper Latin percussion. And it's not that the Nashville local engineers were doing it wrong, but it lacked that feeling, that bodily kinetic sense of, I'm slapping a drum and it's making me feel something, which is totally different from I am capturing a sound.
1: I heard this interview with Denzel Washington and the interviewer was talking to him about, I I think the question really was kind of circling around the concept of does someone who's Black need to direct a film about a Black topic or, or, or historical event, Denzel's response was, he said, well, Steven Spielberg could easily direct this film that I directed. And I could very easily direct a movie like Schindler's List. Technically, we could do that. But the difference is, is that Denzel understands the culture of the movie that he was being interviewed about. Steven Spielberg understands the culture of a Schindler's List so mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a stereotype per se. It's just that, as you're saying, any Nashville engineer could technically capture it, but it's understanding that, that feeling, that, that visceral, kinetic feeling, as you've mentioned. Right. Because you understand the culture.
0: And it's also a thing that a lot of when, I'd say, in North America, music doesn't have a function or it's not so much as, for example, how we deal about in the music in Latin America and the Caribbean. As I said, we are 100% for partying. So when you understand that reggaeton has a function in terms of the woman you're going to marry, you'll meet her at this party. Seriously, like people go out to find prospective partners people go out to celebrate different things. It's Celebrations are very important in the traditional cultures of Latin America and the Caribbean. So partying has a purpose. You go out for a purpose. And dancing, it's part of our culture, and the music has to incite you to get into that mood, you know? So people know when the music is not serving that function. When somebody mixes something and there comes a reggaeton that was produced in Denmark, which has happened, and it was totally produced, mixed, and created in Denmark, and then it comes, we know there's an element that's missing, and the element that is missing is that people don't know the purpose of that song. Mm. And that is something that is very important, and is not just about getting the right recording, it's about getting the recording to create that purpose <laughs> that you're looking for in the end with music. I, l- I
1: love this. I love the the depth of of what we're talking about here and the importance of of cultures to music and therefore our role as audio professionals in what we're participating in and everything that you're talking about in the music that you grew up listening to in Colombia versus say like coming of age in the Bay Area when thrash metal was becoming a thing with Metallica and Exodus and and bands like that, it's it's equally as important, but it's very different
0: completely. It's very, very different. Obviously, thrash metal had a purpose. The purpose was to thrash your brain, right? <laughs> that was be- that was basically it. You know, by the way, as a parenthesis, Colombia has one of the biggest metal communities in the whole
1: world, yeah. I am aware of the importance of metal in general in that part of the world,
0: yeah, it's huge. And that serves a purpose again. Right. But the listening experience is completely different. Yeah. And that is something that I believe should be the rule number one for music producers and audio producers in general. Mm. What are you going to do? What is your client going to do once you have created this song and worked on this song? Where is it going to go? Who is it going to go to? When you understand that, I think that's when you become an exceptional person.
1: And for those that don't know how big metal music is in that part of the world, just watch any Iron Maiden concert that yes. takes place in that part of the world, in any of those countries. and you Yeah, just, there's, it's, there's, it's there's like, a big
0: documentary that Iron Maiden did about like 10 years ago in the anniversary of one of their biggest albums and and they actually have a special part dedicated to when they traveled to Bogota how people were camping outside of the stadium for 4 days just to get in
1: yeah it's it's like seeing a scene from like a mega church or something it's incredible yep. incredible yeah Hey, it has really been a pleasure to talk with you, and I hope that uh, we can meet in person at some point in the future, share a coffee, talk business, talk shop.
0: Absolutely.
1: I will put a link in the show notes to your website and any other links you happen to send me. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much, Maria.
0: Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure, and thank you to all your listeners, and, and hope they get something interesting out of it, and maybe they'll become salsa metal listeners after that.
1: That's right. I hope so. Maria Elisa Ierbe here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. As usual, head on over to your podcast aggregator, leave a five-star review. That would be appreciated. I know I say it every week, but, you know, I got to get you guys to do this because it's really important. So if you do like the show, only if you like the show, go do that. Uh, but that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Chuck Smith with the magic voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and as usual, if you'd like to send me an email, do so, Matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,